Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying them, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him the one who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So this past week, the uh, the elder board and um, Michael were up at the uh, at a conference, and the topic was the the title of the conference was the good fight, the good fight. That there is such a thing as the good fight. We need conferences on that now, right? That you can fight, and it's it's a good thing. Um. And as I, was, as I was thinking through the conference and the exhortations that we received, this example of John the Baptist came to my mind. 
And that's why I wanted to uh, come to this passage. John the Baptist was, was a good fighter. He fought well. He was a good fighter who fought the good fight. And so, so that's why we're, we're here in, in Luke. Uh, and so we remember that John the Baptist is a forerunner. He was, he was the one prophesied about that he would precede the coming of the Messiah the one who would come before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? John the Baptist, or as I think uh, this passage allows us to call him, John the prophet, right? He's, he's known as the last of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophets before cruci- uh, the crucifixion of Christ. Um, but yet, or better yet, maybe we could call him John the preacher of the gospel. John, who preached the gospel. Um, Chapter 2 gives us a glimpse of Jesus as a young man at the age of 12. Now we jump ahead about 17 years um, to this chapter. Jesus is around 30 years old, and John is about to get the ball rolling. Uh, The the kingdom of of God is at hand. Luke chapter 3 begins with a description of the rulers of the region. At this time, Palestine... Uh, the kingdom of Herod the Great uh, was divided into four parts. It was a tetrarchy. Judea was under the direct administration of Rome, and then Galilee and Iturea were both ruled by, were, were ruled by two of Herod's sons, um, Herod Antipas and Philip, and Abilene was governed by Lysanias, or Lysanias, or however you want to say it. Um, we don't know much about him. Uh, we know quite a bit about Herod Antipas because he ruled for 43 years in Galilee, uh, the region where most of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus took place. Like his father, he was a wicked man. Uh, a commentator describes him as covetous, avaricious, luxurious, and utterly dissipated and suspicious. And with a good deal of that fox cunning, which especially in the East often forms the sum total of statecraft. So he, he, was, he, was, a, he was a scoundrel. We also know, looking ahead uh, to verses 18 through 20, that Herod Antipas was committing incest. Uh, Herodias had already married her half-uncle, uh, Herod Philip. Uh, Then when she became infatuated with Herod Antipas, another half-uncle, she divorced Herod Philip and married Antipas. Um, Things are getting very complicated in their family tree. We also learn in verse 2 that there were two high priests, though the law only required one. Uh, Again, the commentator says the chief religious office was divided between two equally unworthy of its function. Two bad men. There was likely some political reason for such a, a splitting of the office into two. And indeed, it seems that only Caiaphas held the title, but Annas had equal power without the title. Um, Annas and Caiaphas were, were those high priests. Into this complicated, oppressive, dangerous situation comes John the Baptist, son of Zacharias. As it says in verse 2, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. 
John has something to do. John has some preaching to do into that wicked, crazy, complicated context. For about a year, John and Jesus would be ministering concurrently. Then John is put into prison and later is executed at the request of a vicious little girl named Salome, the daughter of Herodias, and her other half-uncle, Herod Philip. Now remember, um, this isn't the first time we see John in the uh, Gospel of Luke. Chapters 1, 5 through 25, and verses 39 through 80 all have to do with John the Baptist, right? That first chapter is mostly... John the Baptist and his parents Elizabeth and Zacharias, the angel of the Lord told John's parents this, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn back. Notice that statement, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. That is precisely what we see happening in in chapter 3. The great goal of the work God has given to John is to call God's people to repentance. To repentance. The angel had said to his parents before he was born, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's an amazing point, isn't it? How would the people be made ready? How would the people be made ready? By turning their hearts, by changing their minds, um, by changing the attitude of disobedience to an attitude of righteousness. In a nutshell, they would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah through repentance. Through repentance. And it is just, if if I know anything from my, my Christian life, it's that I hate repentance. It's painful. I mean, real repentance. I like the thought of repentance being over, but I do not like the thought of beginning repentance. And all it entails, all the the reconciliation and all the conversations, all the humiliation, and our pride just hates repentance. But look at God's work here. He sent a forerunner before Jesus to be a prophet of repentance. He immediately preceded the public ministry of his very son, God Almighty, with the public ministry of a man who was to lead the people to repentance, even as it says in verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A message of repentance is what God wanted preached at the very last minute before his son would come and speak to us himself. And we make nice categories in our mind. John, repentance, Jesus, gospel. John, law, Jesus, grace. John, mean, Jesus, nice. 
John, ordinary black letters in my Bible. Jesus, red, pretty, more important. John, Old Testament. Jesus, New Testament. John, derogatory. Jesus, complimentary. John, graceless. Jesus, graceful. John, repentance. Jesus, faith. And largely, these categories are fixed in our minds because we have a negative view of repentance. Right? We think it nasty. We feel it's depressing. We feel it's hopeless. But anyone who has really experienced repentance, deep sadness and hatred of sin, knows that it is anything but nasty. It's hard, but it's sweet. It's, it's about the greatest thing one can experience this side of, of glory. Right? Because when we repent of our sins, we are just beginning to view, view them as God views them. We're just starting to get that right. right? We, we are just beginning to turn away from sins and be amazed by God's grace. When we experience that gift from God called repentance, our sorrow is our deepest happiness. Right? The Apostle Paul puts that this way. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Right? The most mature among us will be those who most appreciate those things that provoke us to repentance. The most mature will be most provoked to repentance. The most mature will recognize their sin most and be provoked to repentance more. Um, We will appreciate things like accountability. Accountability from friends and from officers. Uh, we'll, We'll appreciate that sermon that really, really was unpleasant for us. It really smacked us down. We will appreciate that that the scripture reading hit us between the eyes and convicted us of something that we've just not even been thinking about, right? That and we'll appreciate wounds we receive from friends, even from friends. Right? As it says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Would you rather have kisses from an enemy? Do you want flattery? Is that good for your soul? No, it's not. Get wounded by your friends and you'll know true joy. Ask yourself this. Is repentance your enemy? Is repentance an enemy to you? Has your pride so bound you up that you are never willing to admit you are wrong? Children, children, are you ever willing to admit that you're wrong? Or are you quick to cover up your tracks? Are you ever willing to let pour your tears out before God for the sins you have committed that necessitated his son hanging from a tree, bleeding and dying? My son Thomas came into my room last night and, and, and he just said, I just can't stand it when I get angry. I just can't stand it when I get angry. It's, it's, just, it's like it's not even me. I, I hate it. You know, and that's after he and his brother have been fighting for all afternoon. But that's repentance. Hating that sin and hating what led to it. And just fe- he just felt nasty. He was sitting in his room by himself crying. Pouring out his eyes. Do you cry over the sins that you've committed and feel just nasty from them? 
Or is your attitude toward repentance more like this? I've done my repenting. I did that back when I first became a Christian, right? Um, and then we always think at this point of the, the first of the 95 theses, right? Or I do. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our entire life is repentance. We shouldn't get tired of it because we've got a lot of it to do until we die, right? Repent. Um, and go, go read Psalm 51 or Romans 7 and 8 and let me know if you still think repentance should not be a continuing part of the Christian. Read, read that, that re- repentant psalm that David wrote when he sinned. Um, the first two sentences of Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance, the two great essentials to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life as heat and radical moisture do the natural. So now, all of that, let's look at the preaching of repentance from John the preacher. What's going on? We're given four examples of John's preaching in our passage. First, he preaches to the multitudes, verses 7 through 11. Second, he preaches to tax gatherers, verses 12 and 13. And then third, he preaches to some Roman soldiers, verse 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, we return to his preaching to the multitudes, the crowds, the people that are around. In the first instance, the crowds are flying out to the wilderness where John lived, eating his locust and honey. And they're flying out there to be baptized with this baptism of repentance. And John gently, John very gently says to these inquirers, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, the prophets through the ages had been warning the Jews to flee from the wrath to come. And they'd done a good job of ignoring those prophets, hadn't they? The people of God. Jesus brought this attitude to light later in his ministry when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. John is saying, why in the world are you listening now? Then he gives the people a four-point sermon. One, show me your repentance. Bring forth fruits that show me your repentance. Two, don't think for a second that your Jewishness is going to save you. It means nothing. God could make these rocks Jews. Three, you don't have much time. The axe is already laid at the root. And then four, bear good fruit or else. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, think of that. Show me your repentance. Being a Jew isn't going to save you. You don't have much time or you're going to hell. That's what he preached to them. Now, what's the goal of such a sermon? It's clearly repentance. An acknowledgement that we have sinned. We have sinned. How do the crowds respond? They respond with a question, then then what shall we do? What shall we do? 
And John answers with a very practical answer. He basically says, show me fruit, show me your repentance. Not by coming out here and doing the cheap and easy thing. Give away your food and clothing to the poor. Here's here's an example of how you can show me your repentance. Give away your food and clothing to the poor. Now the second sermon. Some tax collectors come to be baptized, and the tax collectors were notorious. They were authorized by the Roman government to gather taxes, and they were notorious for taking way more than they were allowed to take. Uh, They abused their power. They, They lined their own pockets and became wealthy men. They want this baptism of repentance. What moved them to this desire? Well, how does John respond to their question? Teacher, what shall we do? He tells them to stop lining their pockets. Only gather what you've been ordered to gather. No more. He's saying, show me fruit. Show me your repentance with the change of life. Right? Show me some difference. That you're going to obey those who have authority over you and you're not going to afflict all the people around you. Now, the third sermon, some Roman soldiers had some questions for John. What should we do, John? What should we do? How does John respond to their question? He again tells them to show the fruit of their repentance, not just by their words, but by not being thugs. Not being whiners, right? Just exactly what a soldier wants to hear, right? Don't be a thug, don't be a whiner. All of these commands by John to the crowds, to the tax collect, uh, gatherers, to the soldiers are all meant to provoke one thing. They're all meant to provoke repentance. And yes, we've sinned, you know, just a realization. Ah, oh, yes, we've sinned against God by presuming upon the lineage of Abraham and disregarding his law. Oh, yes, we, we have sinned against God by taking money that wasn't our own. Yeah, we've sinned against God by being thugs and and governmental tools. We've sinned in these ways. And so the preaching of the word by John was meant to bring repentance and not just lip service repentance, not just an easy baptism. He's like, you came out here for baptism, but, but here are a few things to do first. Not just sacramental relief by baptism repentance, but fruit in keeping with repentance. John preached in order to prick their conscience. He preached in order to make them examine themselves. He preached law that they might cry out in repentance. Now, how do these people respond? Verse 15 shows us. They are, in a sense, blown away. The passage says they were in a state of expectation and they were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Messiah. They sense that something significant is going on. Now, that, that, that's progress. They at least see there's something significant going on here. They're made to reflect, they're made to consider, they're made to think. Uh, you know, I, I hope that my preaching does the same. Um, this is, as Ryle says, a hopeful symptom of preaching. Um, at the very least, they have been made to think. All the people there have been made to think. John the preacher answers their questions about whether 
uh, he might be the Messiah, he says, I'm not the Christ. In fact, I'm not, even un- I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. I've got water. He has the Holy Spirit and fire. And you better be ready for his coming. Are you ready? Then repent. That's what he's saying. Are you ready? Then repent. John has been hammering the people. John has been calling out particular sins of particular people. The Jews boast in their heritage, thinking they need no faith. The tax gatherers are crooks and the soldiers are too. And he tells them, stop being those things. Stop. Repent. Change. And you know what that is. You know what that kind of preaching is. That is nothing less than the preaching of the gospel. This is gospel preaching. This is gospel preaching. Notice what it says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. How in the world is what John did, calling out people's sins, warning them that the axe is laid at the root of the tree, telling them to stop stealing, telling them that those who do not repent are like chaff, which Jesus will burn up with unquenchable fire. How in the world is that preaching the gospel? The gospel, the good news. How is that the good news? The announcement of good tidings. Now, dear brothers and sisters, in the church today is John's preaching what we would call the gospel. Today we use the word gospel in opposition to this kind of preaching. This is not preaching of the gospel. Today we use the word gospel more as something that calms the conscience than inflames the conscience. Gospel is a synonym for cheap grace by which repentance is deemed unnecessary. Absolutely superfluous. But the Holy Spirit calls John's preaching. The Holy Spirit calls John's preaching here the gospel. The good news. The announcement of good tidings. So how is this good news? How is the preaching of this law, the gospel? The Holy Spirit gives us an explanation in Romans chapter 3. There we read this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And again, in the book of Galatians, the Holy Spirit tells us, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law becomes a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may then be justified by faith. Through John's gospel preaching of the law, the end game was to A, bring conviction of one's sins, and B, be a goad to push these people to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. There is no gospel without law. There is no gospel without repentance. There is no gospel without sin. There is no gospel without defining the problem, which is sin. There is no gospel without each of us feeling feeling and despairing about the problem of sin deep down in our bones, right? And falling in repentance before his awesome holiness and pleading the blood of Jesus Christ before healing is disease, right? Before joy is gloom, before endurance is hard work, 
right? Before salvation is sin. And to withdraw the gospel from the context of sin is to make Jesus into just another guru, just another man with, with a, an interesting plan. But what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the Savior of mankind from their sins. The second Adam who died to crush the head of the serpent while we were God's enemies. To withhold the law, to withhold the indictment, to withhold the predicament of mankind is to destroy the very greatness of the grace of God. That is why many in the PCA, with their grace-only approach, diminish the very God of heaven and disparage ministries like that of John the Baptist. This is the good fight. This is the good fight. Right? He calls the people out and he and those who would become convicted, right, will be soft in heart and will pray will be so thankful for John's ministry. But those who resist it will kill him and behead him. Herod resisted his calls for repentance and he had him killed. It's a fight. It's a fight here. Now this is why John's approach is called the gospel. The good news. Good news follows bad news. In fact, it arises out of bad news. Praise God for those preachers like John the Baptist who will still warn men to flee from the wrath to come. Who are unwilling to treat Jesus and and his work in isolation from man's damnable sinfulness and rebellion it is compassion to tell a man he hangs by a thread over the fires of hell and that he can be and must be saved by jesus christ alone that is the gospel and that is good and so john the baptist john uh, john the preacher john the the man was a wonderful gospel preacher. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Oh God, we, we thank you for the preparatory work that many did in our own lives, calling us to repentance before we even knew you. That you used to, as your spirit was opening our eyes, And bringing us to Jesus and seeing how wonderful, how incredible it is to think that our sins have been taken away from us as far as east is from west. 